to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. Uh, anything, anything going on, John? It's going to be hard to fill two hours. <laughs> no, it's going to be no. very easy to fill two hours. Boy, there's a interesting midterms night. Really wow. interesting midterms night, such as we uh, know anyway at this point, right? Yeah. Because there are still... Uh, many, many. There are a races. lot of things in play. I mean, formally, officially, uh, both houses of Congress still in play. Yeah, both. Uh, waiting both. on some decisions. Which nobody expected. No, I mean, definitely, the story to the night is the the red tide that wasn't That's at right. least so far. Yes. Um. So we are going to, of course, throughout the course of the show, be talking about where exactly that red tide went. Uh, how did the people who won win? Mm-hmm. How did the people who lost lose? Right. What does this mean? For the future of both parties, uh, in particular, what does this mean for both Biden and Trump 2024? Because I think that's an interesting question. Um, Boy, is it. Bad night for Donald Trump. Good night for Ron DeSantis. Very. Interesting night for ballot initiatives. I will say I, you know, because, of course, I'm, you know, I don't like seeing Republicans win. So I'm glad that this red wave wasn't huge. Mm -hmm. I'm not excited about a lot of Democrats winning, no. honestly, because I think it's a very disappointing party. But, uh, you know, and this notion better of that than the other the right to win is just wrong. Yeah, is is garbage. But I am genuine. I, I am usually and consistently um, heartened by by what we see on ballot initiatives. Right. And I mean, uh, one of the clearest messages uh, from uh, among those today was was the fate of initiatives on abortion. Amazing. Right? Where just I th- I think in every single case where abortion uh, was put to a ballot initiative, voters backed proposals to protect abortion rights. Yes. Um, in Michigan, where they tried to the, remember they how they tried to get that initiative struck down, struck from the ballot because right. of the kerning of the print. Yeah, it was like the wrong uh, typeface or something like that. Yeah, voters were not having it. They <laughs> voted to create a right to abortion in the state's constitution. Uh, voters did similar things in Vermont and California and in Kentucky and Montana. They struck down ballot initiatives that sought to restrict access to mm-hmm. abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I will have two questions here. You could say, as, as you know, and I will not be the first to say this, that uh, voters have, with with these measures and others, really handed Democrats a mandate to codify abortion rights in, in law. The other thing that they possibly have done is given them an opportunity to say, oh, well, states are doing it for themselves. Right. Right. It's a state's rights issue. You don't need us. You don't need us. Actually, it turns out it worked just fine. So we'll see if Democrats, again, uh, pull the old abortion rights switcheroo at the federal level. But it is very clear what voters want. Also, I mean, I know, John, the biggest issue for you and I, uh, psychedelic mushrooms in Colorado. Yeah. Were they going to be (laughs) legalized or not? What was the uh, end result? Do we know yet? They will be. Yeah. So uh, Colorado and Oregon so mm-hmm. far. Illegalizing and magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty cool. Good. Uh, in uh, local news, Initiative 82 passed in yes. D.C. very comfortably. That was the initiative to raise the tipped minimum wage. And That's so right. now we see. That's a big deal. If the D.C. Council decides to overturn the will of the city once more. Once more. They have yet again the chance to do the right thing. Uh, and let's see if they do. Yeah. I hope they do. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Nevada voted to raise the minimum wage also, which is heartening. And uh, Maryland and Missouri approved ballot measures to legalize recreational marijuana. Uh, Arkansas and North Dakota did not. But, you know, the, yeah. we see which way the tide is trending. Oh, there. yeah. Um, yeah, they're going to be left behind. And a lot of states that had uh, questions regarding language about slavery mm-hmm. in their state constitutions, right? Slavery is abolished except for. That's right. Uh, you can force people to labor if they've been convicted of certain felonies. That's right. Uh, it seems like most states, four of the five who uh, had measures that were going to get rid of that language, uh, decided to do that. Only in Louisiana did voters <laughs> reject the proposal that would have removed language allowing slavery from their state constitution. The most harshly carceral state in America. Yeah. You don't ever want to be convicted of a felony in the state of Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. No. Also, I think, isn't Kern County, California also, I think, might have the high. They have a giant prison there in California. I just know because I walked through there once um, and was surprised. I learned a lot about California on that trip. I have to double check that. I'm not sure it's the highest concentration, but I think it's it's up there. They got a they got a big old prison out there. Um, We also have some breaking news that we are going to get to right now, uh, far away from these midterms, which we will return to. But we have some breaking news from Ukraine where uh, Russia has announced, Russia itself has announced, we are withdrawing from Kherson. Yes, we are withdrawing big, big across the Dnieper River. Yes. Uh, the Russian defense minister said he was ordering the withdrawal, uh, saying we, we are going to save the lives of our soldiers uh, and we are going to maybe use some of them on other fronts. So we're going to talk about what that means right now with our guest, Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action Magazine. He's also the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy. Jeremy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, you know, this, how significant is this withdrawal? It seems like a, seems like a pretty big deal. Yeah. seems like, a, you know, not a great, well, I guess on one hand, you know, there had been withdrawals and evacuations from the city for some time. So it's not as though uh, this comes necessarily as a surprise, um, I'll stop there and I'll have another question for you in a second. So how, how significant is this? Uh, uh, well, I think it indicates that this is a, you know, long drawn out quagmire, uh, you know, that, that, that this thing is not going to be over so quickly. Uh, I mean, you know, each side, uh, maybe has expressed or, you know, tried to convey, uh, uh the illusion that they could, you know, quickly achieve their military objectives. And I mean, that, that's a tragedy for the people of Ukraine. The, the human consequences are going to continue to compound. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, uh, Kherson was described as a ghost town and the people have suffered, you know, seriously, uh, in this fighting. And unfortunately, I think that's what the U.S. wants. They pumped all that weaponry to Ukraine because they have a, you know, I mean, Ukraine is just being used as kind of pawn in this larger, uh, grand strategic vision uh, of trying to uh, plunge Russia into a quagmire uh, and you know devastate Russia's economy and ratchet up the sanctions and weaken the Putin government and ultimately promote regime change. And Biden was actually, you know, was openly called for regime change in Russia. 
And it's the same blueprint as uh, the U.S. government pursued in Afghanistan in the 80s when they supported the Mujahideen and they provoked the Russian intervention, uh, invasion of Afghanistan, just like they provoked the Russian invasion here of Ukraine. And it's all part of a, a scheme. And it, it's the mindset of people like Zbigniew Brzezinski, who now deceased, but it's this Machiavellian uh, attitude of, you know, uh, world politics seen as a kind of chessboard. Well, he wrote the book, The Grand Chessboard, mm -hmm. and you know, the, the human costs are not really considered. It's all about power politics and adopting these kind of schemes to weaken your enemy. And uh, that's what we're seeing play out in Ukraine uh, to the uh, horrific consequences for the U Ukrainian people. I think, you know, you mentioned uh, both sides perhaps overstating their ability to quickly achieve their military objectives. I also think those military objectives have been pretty unclear or have at least uh, shifted from the start, uh, more so in the case of, of Russia, I think, than Ukraine. But with that said, I mean, I'm talking about their stated military objectives. With that said, I wonder if in fact, this withdrawal is actually, you know, uh, bringing this conflict to a state that a lot of now analysts predicted it would come to from the very start of this conflict, which is, uh, you know, uh, Russian control on the east of the Dnieper River and Ukraine, you know, a rump Ukraine left on the west side. Is that something that you uh, might predict looking at this? It's a, you know... It is both a retreat and also perhaps a sort of hardening or freezing of this conflict. I think so. Yeah, I mean, Russia uh, said that announced that they're going to be recalibrating their uh, defensive lines uh, uh, around Zaporizhia, uh, and I mean, I think they have more firm control uh, in some of the other regions, you know, uh, other uh, areas and cities in eastern Ukraine where they've had these referendums uh, and Luhansk, uh, Donetsk, and in some way that's been a success for Russia. I mean, Russia is poised to expand its territory uh, through this conflict. Uh, so far, its economy is withstanding the pressure uh, and is thriving, and they're, they're forging new alliances with China uh, and other countries. Uh, so Russia may come out of this ultimately uh, successful, and the West, you know, uh, in those areas, regaining more territory, uh, uh, its economy surviving, even thriving. Uh, so right now, I still think, you know, Russia uh, is looking better. I mean, this this war is affecting the West very negatively. It's affecting the Western economy, uh, you know, European economy with the enemy uh, energy crisis, it's affecting the American economy. I think we're going to see increasing dissension about it. We even see that now in, in American domestic politics with some Republican candidates really questioning uh, the narrative about Ukraine and, and questioning the amount of money that's being spent there. So uh, I still think yeah, Russia has the upper hand and is coming out stronger with, with the acquisition of territory in eastern Ukraine. What do you think happens in the conflict uh, after this? Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, <laughs> but I mean, I think it, it, it will go. It will go on. I mean, yeah, that is what, what the U.S. And, and some of these uh, Machiavellian planners want, is to grind the Russians down and weaken them and drain their resources. Uh, but again, it may be draining the, the resources of the West and, and weakening the West more than Russia. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know if their calculation this time is, 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 is good. I mean, it was in Afghanistan. Uh, that that was uh, delivered a kind of coup de grace to the Soviet empire. And Brzezinski bragged about that. But this time, I don't know. The West seemed more in decline. 
and Russia seems a bit stronger now and seems to be holding on. I mean, this is just like a minor setback. With Kherson, uh, they're just recalibrating their forces, and they're still in, in control, I think, in eastern, much of eastern Ukraine. Uh, that was Jeremy Kuzmarov of Covert Action Magazine. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this breaking story. Really appreciate it. Thanks. My pleasure. Anytime. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with a lot more midterms. A lot of politics. Yep. You're It'll be fun. listening to Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We're going to get more to these midterm results, but I forgot about one of the more yeah. unsettling <laughs> things I saw last night, which is uh, Sean Penn dramatically bestowing his Oscar on the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. What an utter disconnect. What that, a, that sentence is. Yeah. Here, you can have this until you win your war, which is not the same as winning an award. No. That's given to you by a club of your, yeah. of your rich professional pals. I mean, it's, I, again, I, this is not like, I suppose I understand the, the, perspective of Ukraine that, you know, uh, this is positive attention. They want to keep eyes on their cause. They want to maintain public sympathy because they need money coming in to both support uh, their defensive effort and also to support their economy. So I get it. But the the imbalance there of gravity and meaning, it's so unsettling as to make you think like, what the, what is going on? Why is Sean Penn having a face-to-face meeting with a wartime president? What what is he thinking that he can bring to this situation? See, this I mean, is, I guess it's attention, but for God's sure. sake. This and, is one of the criticisms of Zelensky, though, is that he's he's a glory hound. And I think that he just loves yeah. I mean, the, the war aside. I think he just loves being courted by these people that he's always admired for their their Hollywood movies or their hit records or their, you know, big names, you know, from the Nobel Prize Committee or whatever. He yeah. loves being a part of that milieu. It just makes you think like normal people who are not as uh, maniacally egotistical as Sean Penn must be to yeah. take part in a yeah. farce like this Agreed. will look at this and go, this is this is like uncanny valley stuff, right? Like it's very, and, and turn them off, right? Yeah. Because it's, they're not, you're, they're not Sean Penn's who go, oh yeah, okay, cool. I'll, right. if I, like, I'll give him a statue and that's going to be really meaningful right. in this right. war. Yes. It's just, it's just bizarre. Anyway, I, 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 I agree with you. I don't know what to make of it. I, it's just, just too weird. It's hard to put your finger on why it is, why it is bad and wrong other than uh, war is one thing and entertainment is another. Yes. And uh, it's it's strange to see the two being treated as the, as though they should be on equal footing, and that the one can offer some support to the other. I agree. It's wild. I agree. Very, anyway, all very right. Strange. Back to the midterms, I guess. 
back to the midterm. So last night's election results uh, gave us some shocking uh, uh, totals that in some respects proved the polls correct. And in others showed that talk of a red wave or red tsunami was just a, a, a pipe dream. Um, interestingly, control of the Senate is still too close to call. It may come down. It will come down, is my guess, to a single runoff election to be held on December 6th in the state of Georgia between Raphael Warnick and Herschel Walker. The, the Republicans appear to have won the House. We don't really know yet. Mm -hmm. If they do win, it's going to be by the skin of their teeth. Fewer than half the candidates in competitive in, uh, races endorsed by Donald Trump won. Exit polls show that abortion was a major factor in the election after all, and election deniers running for governor or for state secretary of state in these competitive states almost all lost. We're going to talk about some of these broader trends and issues with Eugene Craig. Eugene is a Republican strategist, grassroots activist, and former vice chairman of the Maryland Republican Party. Great to have you back, Eugene. I've been looking forward to this for days. Yeah, me too. Me too. Appreciate being on. Oh, thanks for doing it. There is so much to talk about. Let's begin with the talk of the red wave. It simply failed to materialize last night. But in the end, that may not matter. It looks like Republicans are going to take the House of Representatives anyway. And the Senate is still up for grabs. Does it matter that the two chambers will be so evenly divided, do you think? Yeah, I think it absolutely does matter. Um, because the, the slimmer the majority the more powerful the majority within the majority or my or, or minority within the majority good point uh, have so so this very well could become untenable for McCarthy um I mean we can see him essentially go to, if he becomes speaker we could see him go down the same path that Boehner and Ryan both went down because of slim majorities um and not having the margin that the other say you know kick rocks to some of the most extreme parts of the uh, of the caucus um, you know, McCarthy's trying to play nice already with like, you know, uh, MTG. Right. Others, um, to try to fend that off. But the thing is this, right? Um, the more, folks on the more far right have always, the plan has always been to control the caucus with essentially 40 votes. Right. So, you right. know, if the margin is slim, they're going to be extracting things out of him before he even gets to the speaker. Well, he all, he already said two days ago that Marjorie Taylor Greene deserves um, a spot on key committees. So I think you're exactly right. This this very squeaky wheel, even though it's a very small minority within the Republican Congress, uh, I'm sorry, caucus, uh, is going to end up exerting um, an incredible amount of influence, I think, on the office of the Speaker. I agree, 110%. Very interesting. You're going to see nothing get done out of that house. Um, because they, they aren't going to be able to negotiate with the Senate. Yeah. And, um, and, and for, for what it's worth, um, you know, they'll, you'll probably see, you know, a, 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 a government shutdown or two, um, before the 2024 elections. Yeah. I think you're right. Assuming that Mark Kelly keeps his Senate seat in Arizona and it's still too close to call, although he's leading. Ron Johnson keeps his Senate seat in Wisconsin, and it looks like he's actually won it. And Catherine Cortez Masto loses her seat in Nevada to Adam Laxalt, which is what the numbers all currently show. Control of the Senate comes down to that one seat in Georgia and a December runoff between Raphael Warnick and Herschel Walker. 
I hate to even think what that's going to look like over the next four weeks. Imagine like a billion dollars pouring into the state of Georgia for new advertising. Every major national politician descending on Georgia to campaign in the next four weeks. How do you see something like that playing out? Well, the thing is this, right? Um, We've already saw it. We saw it in 2021. Right. Um, And for what it's worth, um, it wasn't a matter of Trump, right? Because Trump was already gone by then. Yes. And so the thing is this, you know, when Warnock's given an opportunity to take on, you know, somebody one-on-one and be quite frank about it, um, you know, Kelly Loeffler was much much more uh, strong. Oh, yeah. Much tougher. Um, you know, I think, I think this, this actually becomes somewhat of a, 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 a easier fight for him. Oh, very interesting. It seems that last night was a bad night for Donald Trump and a very good night for Ron DeSantis. The most ardent of Trump supporters in competitive races lost. In the meantime, Trump made a big deal over the weekend of saying that we should expect an announcement next week that he's running for president. And he has repeatedly taken personal shots at Ron DeSantis, calling him Ron DeSanctimonious. But DeSantis won handily last night. He just crushed Charlie Crist by almost 19 percentage points. And he has $200 million left over in his campaign war chest. What do you think the results from yesterday mean for the coming Republican presidential primary? Did yesterday weaken Donald Trump among Republicans? Yes, I think to a degree. Uh, but you got to also keep in mind that, like, Trump put up the W in, in Ohio with J.D. Vance. Yeah. Um, and then there's a slew of House members that you know, are, are going to be House members just because of Donald Trump's endorsement that got them through their primary. Um, and so, and the thing is this, you know, there's still a huge level of fealty to Donald Trump. He's going to have to do something just absolutely ridiculous that the party, you know, says, Hey, you know, we're moving past you, um, onto DeSantis. I mean, I can tell you internally that, you know, folks that, you know, will play that, that will play a major role in election, whoever the nominee is, are telling DeSantis, Donald gets in, you can't run. Now I do think DeSantis jumps in anyway. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, let, let the games begin. There was a a piece in Business Insider today. I was going to save it for a little later, but I'm going to blurt it out now just because it's so crazy. I can't keep it in. A piece in Business Insider saying that Trump has been telling people in his inner circle and at least one journalist that he intends to announce next week that he is going to run for president with Marjorie Taylor Greene as his vice president. What do you think that does in a Republican primary? Oh, well, that, that actually may be the catalyst for a, a Ron DeSantis to jump in. Right. Now, Does, the question, now, the question becomes, right, who becomes, you know, Ron DeSantis' you know, VP pick? Does he go through the normal process? Um, I actually thought that it was kind of smart of Ted Cruz to account, announce Carly Fiorina um, back early in 2016. Right. Um, before, um, before he even uh, <laughs> got to the convention. Yeah, I think people should run on on, on their on their full ticket early. Yeah, um, yeah, this like you know this looks again. I mean, it, it allows essentially the doubling of effort. Um, yeah, I think it's actually a really really smart move. Um, but for what it's worth, you know, and yeah, I don't I don't think he announces her. I don't think that you know poking his orbit allow that to happen. In other instance, you know, they'll be murdered in general election. Um, and so um, I, I don't I don't necessarily see that that. I mean, I, I know he's going to announce. But I don't see him announcing her. Yeah. Um, I just don't see that. 
um, you know, there, there's no upside to, 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 to him with her. I mean, there are much more qualified Republican women out there. I mean, you got Nikki Haley. I mean, there's, there's yep. other folks. Yeah. And then, you know, look, the, the, the demos are finally catching up with the voters, right? Um, you know, young voters, you know, young voters, you know, you know, black and brown voters are, are actually turning up and turning out at record numbers like never seen before. You know, whoever the Republican ticket is, they're going to have to catch with that. Yes. Well, you know, I actually wanted to ask you about that, too. One of the things we talked about here in the uh, in the studio uh, before the show was how people of color in especially in in southeastern Florida turned out for DeSantis. They didn't turn out for Democrats in in staunchly Democratic districts. They split their tickets voting for DeSantis for governor and, you know, local Democrats or they went all the way and voted Republican. Uh, Republican Latino women in Texas also largely held their own. There was one seat that flipped, but, um, but Latinos uh, cast an awful lot of votes for Republicans yesterday. Is that an anomaly or is that, is that a trend that we've been seeing coming for some time that Democrats are going to have to figure out how to deal with? <coughs> I was going to say, it's not necessarily people, people of color think it's, it's a specific Latino thing, right? Uh-huh. Um, Hispanic thing. And the thing is this, right? There is something that Democrats are going to have to pretend with, um, you know, how they message is, is going to matter. Um, how they engage is going to matter. Um, part of the thing, part of it with South Florida is that you're dealing with like five or six different cultures right down there. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, largely Cuban, right. Which is going to skew Republican naturally. Um, but then, you know, you have, you know, you know, particularly in Texas, you know, you have, um, you, know, you you have you know uh, you know you know Mexican American women and uh, Mexican American men also that that are are quite to Republican. Yeah. Um. So so the thing is that Democrats are going to have to contend with this. You know, this ain't on black folks. This ain't on black men. This ain't on black women. Um. You know, Michael Harriet over at, at Michael Harriet, you know, actually tweeted out something that's really interesting. It was like, you know, hey, Paul, talk about black men. You know, black men and black women supported Stacey Abrams by overwhelming margins. It was, you know, it, it, it's, it's the white and Hispanic voters that kind of let her down. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. Um, you know, so that that that's the thing there, um, and that's the, you're seeing that. You know, you know, but the thing is, this, right. Every vote matters. Every vote counts, and and every person that's asking for a vote has to be prepared to fight for that. I wanted to ask you about other Republicans who are talking about or or building uh, presidential cam- campaign committees, uh, especially Mike Pence. And uh, Mike Pompeo, did yesterday's results mean anything to their campaigns? You know, th- we talk so much about about Donald Trump and and um, and uh, Mark DeSantis. Uh, what about the other the, the other? I guess we could call them also rans so far. Was there any impact on on their uh, campaigns from yesterday's voting? No, I think the people that are going to run are going to run. I think the people that aren't aren't. Um, I think some are going to make their determination based on what Donald Trump does and solely on that. Ron DeSantis. But, but for the most part, the folks that already decide they're going to run, they're going to make the decision already. Yeah. I mean, when, 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 when Tom Cotton took the whole, uh, oh, my God, I'm not going to run. Yeah. Sir, five, yeah. I'm like, bro, your kids were five and seven before you did, before, when you were thinking about running. Nothing changed any magic. They weren't going to magic become 18 overnight. That's exactly right. So, 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 so the thing is that, you know, um, you know, these folks, they're, they're going to, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. 
they're, they're, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. I don't think yesterday really had an impact either way. Yeah. Um, at best, at best, it might have just had. At best, the impact might have just been, hey, um, you know, you, you're winners and you're losers. You're able to build some level of organization by coming in and helping these people. So when you do decide to run and you make your announcement, you know, your state level organizations are going to be able to be it's more easily built out. Mm-hmm. Tapping into you know folks that you support it, cough, cough, green Yunkin, right? Exactly. And, you know, that makes me wonder about the ability of Mike Pence to run a national campaign because the guy was a congressman. Then he was the governor of Indiana. Then he was vice president of the United States. And he still doesn't have a national network. You know, he has a national network. Does he? The national. Absolutely. Was he able to use it to campaign for people in this election yesterday? Well, well, the thing is, this: running in the midterm. Um, it's not necessarily about tapping your national network for you. It's about, you know, Hey, helping them that network. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, this midterm election wasn't reflective of Pence's or anybody else's network. Um, you know, it, it was a reflection of, you know, what they were willing to do to help get people across the fence line, if anything. Right. Um, so, and so the thing, the thing with Pence is that Pence comes with an extremely strong national network. You know, probably at the time of, you know, the nomination in 2016, it was Pence's network that brought, shit, that brought things together um, instead of um, President Trump. Trump didn't have a network. Mm-hmm. I mean, Trump was looking at Jewish donors and saying, hey, keep your money. I don't need your money. You're only good for your money. Right. I mean, I mean that, that's, what, that's what was going on, right? Sure. And so, um, you know, Trump, I mean, so Pence, you know, Pence does have a strong institutionalized network. I mean, it was represented in the second when he left the vice presidency. What did you see? He went and became a fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Heritage Foundation is the largest think tank in the world uh, by virtue of, of funding, uh, funding size, but also by virtue of impact. I mean, two-thirds of the people that, that Heritage recommended for jobs and administration got them. I want to ask you, too, about some of the Democrats who, uh, who just blew it yesterday. There were big losers among the Democrats. It seems to me that Stacey Abrams, for example, in Georgia, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, Charlie Crist in Florida are finished politically. Is this the end of the line for them or will they still exert any authority in the, in the democratic party? Do you think? Well, the thing is this, right? Um, <laughs> personalities are going to be personalities, right? Beto's a great personality, right? Yeah. Far left for Texas. Um, you know, but the guy's able to organize, the guy's able to raise money. Um, I think Roman Martin made a great point last night on, 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 you know, election night coverage is seven, eight hours of coverage is phenomenal. He said, look, if folk are smart, they're making Beto the next, you know, you know, chair of the Texas Democrat party. Oh, the guy good point. To help build on infrastructure. Sure. You know, Stacey Abrams, you know, probably great organizer, probably not the best candidate for governor yeah. in Georgia. Um, but one more time, probably be a great chair for Georgia Democrat Party. Um, when it comes to Charlie Chris, Charlie Chris has been retired a long time ago. Oh my God, yes. I mean, and the guy was literally a Republican governor turned Democrat, you know, uh, and, and that's who you decide to nominate. Come on, man. Yeah, um, terrible candidate. I will, I, but I will say this. Um, I, I do think there is a future uh, Governor Val Demings down the line. So Very interesting. Very interesting. One of the big winners... Uh, from yesterday has to be George Soros. He donated almost $130 million this year of his own money to progressive candidates and causes. And his causes won across the board, really. 
Uh, my question for you then is, what about the Republican mega donors? There are a lot more of them than there are Democrats. How did they do yesterday? I mean, I mean, the thing is this, right? I mean, when it came to uh, ballot initiatives and propositions, um, the, the rule of thumb is typically this. The real fight is getting it on the ballot. Right. Once you got it on the ballot, chances are you probably can get it. <laughs> People are just going to go in and vote yes anyway. Right. For example, in the city of Baltimore, um, the owner of Fox 45 in Sinclair um, put up, you know, half a million, you know, seven fifty or whatever to, to get uh, question K over the finish line which essentially now put term limits on Baltimore city elected officials. Right. Um, you, know, you know, every elected official and, you know, all the Democrat infrastructure is you know, pushing against this. But one more time, when it comes about initiatives, uh, you know, unless they're super, super heavily fought on both ends, they're probably just going to pass. Yeah. Um, in most states, most. Because, hey, you know, um, Louisiana yesterday, you know, they, they, they voted to actually keep slavery. Right. Yes. I, I wanted to raise that with you, yeah. actually. <laughs> there were a lot of these ballot initiatives all across the country. Marijuana legalization, mm-hmm. abortion, and voter IDs. That, that's what got a lot of press. Um, but in my view, most importantly, Tennessee, Oregon, and Vermont supported ballot measures that remove language allowing slavery as punishment for, um, for felony convictions. And um, they, they actually struck it from their state constitutions. And in Alabama, more than 75 percent of voters endorsed changes to the state constitution that removed outdated and racist language, uh, including language related to slavery from their constitution. In 2022. In 2022. <laughs> I mean, yeah. good job. It took that long. Yeah. Let's go, Alabama. But like they did better than Louisiana. And in Louisiana. I mean, I mean, look, the thing is this, right? <laughs> and that's going to be the position other citizens and residents of Louisiana, I think folk need to boycott doing things in the state of Louisiana. Uh-huh. I think festival needs to be pulled out of Louisiana. Pull it. Pull it. Pull it. I mean, pull it. All, you, know, you, know, you, know, you know, folks' teams traveling to see the, their team play the Saints, pull it. Mm-hmm. Traveling to see their team play LSU, pull it. So, you know, this is going to be the position of the residents and citizens of the state of Louisiana. It's a place I do not want to be. Yeah. I've only been to Louisiana twice. I hated it both times. Oh, no. (laughs) You know, New Orleans is just a a dirty, crime-ridden Las Vegas. I mean, is Las Vegas not also dirty? With better music. Yeah, New Orleans seemed to. I went to New Orleans a very long time ago, so I'll withhold judgment (laughs) on the state. Eugene, um, one final question for you. MSNBC is projecting that the Republicans currently have 220 House seats, two more than they need for control. But Fox is saying that the Republicans have 200 House seats and that the rest are all still undecided. It'll likely take the rest of the week, at least, to figure out who controls the House. How do you see this playing out? How much of a a majority do you think uh, uh, the Republicans are going to end up with? Well, I would say this first and foremost. I think from going from this point forward, until MSNBC does right by Tiffany Cross. Um, I don't know how you cancel your highest rating show ever on a week. I don't know how you, you know, decide to silence the voice of black women on your network. Yeah. I don't know how you decide to take the side of Tucker Carlson and other uh, overt racists. I don't understand how you control to the Twitterverse. I don't understand how you literally can her, um, you know, instead of actually circling the wagons and defending her and understanding your actual court, your actual demo that folks actually support your network. So I don't think we take anything that comes out of MSNBC and to do right by Tiffany Cross 
um, with a grain of salt at Fox, we definitely take it with a grain of salt. But to speaking to the actual um, control of the House, um, you know, we just got to wait to see how these races are decided. I mean, I've been saying very, you know, you know, gently that there wasn't going to be a red wave. There never going to be a red wave. Um, it was, you know, listen, we understand that, you know, media needs clicks, needs views. Yes. They need something to talk about. So what happened? Yeah, you talk it up. You talk up. Oh man, this 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 could happen. This this big thing could happen. But in reality, it was never going to happen. The early voting data showed that it wasn't going to happen. Good point. Friends of the polling that kind of showed it was never going to happen. I mean, look in Arizona. I mean, you know, it was like, oh man, you have to make it look like Kerry Lake's going to like, you know, beat Hobbs by four or five points. It's crazy, out of control. You know, it made it look like Maggie Hassan was going to lose to this this election denier in New Hampshire. Come on, man. I mean, so, 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 you know, the thing is this, you just got to wait and see what these, these races are going to, are, are going to shape up to be. Voters are very intelligent. You got a lot of dumb voters out there, but most of them are very intelligent. Um, and, and the thing is this, you know, one thing I think probably everybody should take away from this is that candidate quality matters. Yeah. Up against so true. Voters you're asking them to represent matters. Um, you can't, you know, that doesn't just mean always that an R or D next to their name matters. I mean, the actual quality of the candidate matters. Agreed. Most times, because, you know, listen, Herschel wants to shop in about. <laughs> uh, incidentally, that December 6th runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnick is now official. The uh, Georgia Secretary of State announced it about 15 minutes ago. Eugene Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Eugene is a Republican strategist, grassroots activist, and former vice chairman of the Maryland Republican Party. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back, so stay tuned. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. Listen, there is a lot more to get into with regard to the midterms, and we are going to do that. But there is other stuff happening. And one of the things that was uh, getting a lot of attention earlier this week before the vote yesterday is the Supreme Court preparing to hear oral arguments in the Holland versus Brackeen case. So that's happening today. That case tests the validity of the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. Joining us to talk about that, to talk about some other uh, you know, realistic and perhaps unrealistic uh, methods for achieving either representation or sovereignty uh, for Native governments in the United States, and maybe getting into uh, a story that combines a couple of different sinister threads we follow on this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the maldoings of the CIA. Right. And also uh, what, for lack of a better term, I guess we call indigenous issues. But that's going to be after we talk about the Indian Child Welfare Act. So joining us now for all of this is John Kane. He's a Mohawk activist. He's an educator. He's producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast. And he's the co-host of Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica Radio in New York. John, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So, uh, listen, I have to say, I, I am going to sort of attempt to give a, 
a little outline of what the Indian Child Welfare Act does. And I have this feeling that as soon as I'm done, you'll say, "Okay, well, let me (laughs) let me (laughs) let me make this point in that point, because it's just uh, anything that has to do, it feels like with uh, with Indian law is extremely complicated. So I I know what my fate is, but I'm going to try anyway. So the, the act essentially sets out standards for who Indian children should be placed with if they enter the foster care or adoption system. And this affects both children who live on tribal land or on reservations and children who do not live on reservations, but who are eligible for tribal membership. And it is this aspect of the law that affects children who are eligible for tribal membership, but not uh, on a reservation and thus sort of within the tribal law system uh, that is being challenged here in this case. Uh, The opponents of this law say that that aspect of it is unconstitutional because it's based on race. Uh, Defenders of the law say no, tribal identity is political. And there are a lot of moving parts The act is also basically understood as an attempt to rectify what we have talked about on the show a lot, which is the more than a century's worth of explicit effort by the U.S. government to uh, kill the native, not the child. Uh, And so I'll step in there and ask you what what else you think people should know about this act and then get into all the different aspects of this case. Well, first off, the expression is kill the Indian, save the man. That's the expression. Oh, right. Okay. There we go. Yeah, it's we got to be a little bit more clear because. There's nothing in there that says anything about saving children. Um, yep. it, and when you even when you put something as broad as saying save the man, um, it doesn't necessarily mean us. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's killed Indian and save the man. I think it's important to make that distinction. Okay. Well, I've been a critic of the Indian Child Welfare Act almost from the beginning. And not because it didn't do some good, mm-hmm. because it clearly did. One of the, the, the clearly the um, Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, um, it, it, for all intents and purposes, it put an end to forced placement of native kids in residential schools. Yep. It, it became the end of residential schools as we knew it. Um, but it also took power from the States to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to take children out of the, the family, uh, out of their homes and then place them with white, uh, white families. The problem with it is that it didn't, it doesn't recognize sovereignty, and and this this idea of, of sovereignty as it relates to Native people is still a big question mark for state, federal, um, and frankly international. I mean, at the UN, they still struggle with this whole idea of what are indigenous rights. Do we have a right as to be establish ourselves as citizens of our own nations? So, are is sovereignty really an issue? The um, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples doesn't mention the word sovereignty except for one time. And then it's talking about nation state sovereignty. It's not talking about native sovereignty. So that word is is tricky. And when it comes to ICWA, the problem is sovereignty isn't even taken into account. We get into this debate about race versus um, political group, I guess, or ethnic group. I mean, that's that's what's at um, at argument here with this with this case. Are we a race or are we a people? Mm-hmm. Are we a people that have uh, the distinction of not just territory, but culture, um, ethnicity, all of that stuff? And that's something that the United States has 
has done everything they can over the years. That's what genocide is, right? It's it's about eliminating a people as a distinct people. Well, that's been going on for you know for hundreds of years, and you know certainly hundreds of years uh, under the U.S. rule. And I would argue it still continues today. This this case is a perfect example of violating one of the tenets of genocide, which is taking children away from from a people, taking our children, and. And the, and the fact is, both the poverty that you know is uh, to blame, including drug abuse and that kind of stuff, to blame for the children being removed from the home in the first place. And not only the first child in the Sprechian case, but the uh, the second child they tried to uh, uh, take from uh, from this this woman, who by all accounts is a, is a fairly unfit mother. Yeah. But that that. <laughs> Ooh, what a surprise. We had unfit parents after 150 years of residential schools where we were uh, stripped of, of any kind of family relationship. So we have poverty. We have substance abuse. We have all these things that were imposed on Native people. And then we're going to have have this conversation about uh, that our that our, our kids should be uh, you know taken away from our people as a whole, not just as uh, uh, from our parents, which is what they were doing for 150 years. I mean, so the, the, it's it's got crazy written all over it. And now you've got this Supreme Court, which is very, very right wing. That is, uh, that, you know, that is so poised to uphold states rights. I could I could honestly see them ignoring the fact that this is a sovereignty case mm-hmm. and ICWA failed to address. See, now here's my point. If ICWA had said the reason we're taking uh, we don't believe the states should have the authority to, for uh, for placement of native children is because they are children of of distinct sovereign nations. But they didn't do that. See, the feds took that authority away. They didn't give it to us. The the feds took that authority of the states for for child, uh, child placement and then put as a priority that we we would be placed with uh with native families or or, or other uh, uh, native uh communities. Mm-hmm. So it they didn't do the they didn't really do what they should have done which is to recognize our distinction, recognize our sovereignty. I mean, they've been trying to make us into U.S. citizens yeah. for, in one shape or another, you know, essentially since 1924 when they, well, because we weren't a part of the the 14th Amendment. I don't know if people even realize that. When the 14th Amendment basically, you know, talks about essentially making uh, formerly enslaved people into, into the U.S. citizens, it, it it specifically says people under the U.S. jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. While we weren't under U.S. jurisdiction, we, we, our distinction, our sovereignty. Although the Supreme Courts have been saying since the eight, early 1800s uh, was necessarily diminished by uh, by discovery, which is a, a preposterous notion. But there's been an effort to undermine and diminish our sovereignty either by killing us, you know, removing us from our lands. Uh, you know, or, or or the like, and and so that's what they that's what they've been uh, you know working at. So in 1924, when they passed the the Indian Citizenship Act, they just declare that we're all citizens. They didn't ask; they just make that declaration. Well, let me but they ask, knew it wasn't true. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I want to ask. I mean, so what ICWA does is it says uh, Native children should be placed with immediate family members, members of their uh, tribal community, and uh, you know. You know, if that's not possible, then members of other other native communities and that should be done both for. Well, it's sort of like the tribal government can do that for 
people who live on reservations. But if you are eligible to be a member of the of the if you are eligible to be a tribal citizen, but you don't live on the reservation, then the um, that still that process still has to be done. And so these white families are challenging that, saying that that is race racist, right, that that violates the uh, equal protection clause of the Constitution. And what gets tricky, I feel like, is this argument that uh, tribal tribal membership is political and is not based on race. Because I don't, you know, I think that is where this is going to be hung up. And the, the New York Times has this sort of a uh, very rosy description of the relationship between tribal governments and the U.S. government saying, like, their legal status as sovereign nations with a unique relationship to the U.S. government has for 250 years been the foundation of treaties and regulations and blah, blah, blah. We all know, like, all, you know, treaties are are consistently ignored. We are going to talk about that in just a sec. Um, but. You know, I do wonder, like, on one hand, I mean, I think it is the the, the conversation about um, d- defining tribal membership, right, and what it what it what that means for sovereignty to say to take that away from race and, and make it purely political and based on whatever you know, based on whatever, but based on yeah, an understanding of shared uh, cultural heritage, national heritage, whatever. Uh, but it, it does seem like it's going to be hard to argue that race doesn't have anything to do with it. And that that's well, not what's uh, being protected. Well, but I, I it, it isn't race, though. Mm-hmm. It isn't race. I mean, it, it, it's it's about being a distinct people. Mm-hmm. Race is something we could argue about whether racism even exists or not. Right. I mean, the, I mean right. so I mean, to, to say that it's about race uh, plays but, into their into their handbook. But the idea that, that we're talking about some in, in many uh, situations, native people who don't live on a reservation, yeah. that was a federal policy as well. Mm-hmm. They were driving us out of our territories during, you know, through the Nixon administration and beyond. Mm-hmm. They had programs to to encourage, if not force, native people to to leave the reservation, move into cities, mm-hmm. you know, and most of the times, you know, slums. Uh, you give them some crappy apartment, a crappy job, and 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 again, continue to sever those ties uh, to our to our native community. So it, it's crazy because every policy. The United States has uh, has committed towards Native people has been to undermine our distinction. You know, that's why I said when we were talking about residential schools, if you're going to only talk about truth and reconciliation and not truth and rest restoration, because that that identity, that that distinction, that autonomy, that's what was it was eliminated by stealing our children, children away for for almost. And I want to say this almost 200 years. Yeah. Because even though ICWA came in in 1978, all residential schools didn't end yet because the only thing that changed was there was no more uh, stripping, you know, illegally, you know, taking our children from homes, regardless of the fitness of our homes. Mm-hmm. That's what ended in, in 1978. Residential schools would continue past the year 2000. But a lot of times they were uh, native families were were had embraced them. Well, it's a funny thing that happens after four or five centuries of uh, or I'm sorry, four or five generations of native people going through residential schools. Parents think that that's the norm. So some of these residential schools went on for another 20 or 30 years after ICWA came through. So we're talking about 200 years, essentially, of, of residential schools. And, and now you're going to say that somehow you want to reduce us down to race as if it's not has nothing to do with ethnic, ethnicity right. has nothing to do with sovereignty 
So what what should have happened with ICWA was there should have been an understanding that a native child that has a connection, however that is, and and I don't want to just say blood quantum, but mm-hmm. a native connection, a native parent, let's say, then then the that nation of that parent should uh, should make the determination. They should be the one to take a child away from a, a, a out of a, out of a house, household. They should be the one to take a, a to place that child. Mm-hmm. Right now, we still have the states taking children out of native homes. And the federal government putting a priority on the placement of native children into native homes. We're still not the ones in control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, of course, if you do that, then you give uh, you give tribal governments jurisdiction over state governments outside of these uh, boundaries, which, of course, is going to create a problem for the Supreme Court, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, and you see, therein lies the problem. Yeah. There's been this tap dance that the federal government, as you know, the United States and Canada, have played around Native people, and what the what sovereignty really means. I mean, you, you go yeah. back to you know the um, uh, Johnson v. McIntosh and uh, Justice, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall saying that our that our sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon discovery. Mm-hmm. Well, why? I mean, how is that <laughs> even possible? There is no legal basis. To suggest that I have to be a U.S. citizen. And yet, you know, here's the problem. Some of the folks who are going to argue this case on, on behalf of the native uh, the native side, including Halland or the attorney general, is going to say, well, native people are U.S. citizens. Really? Yeah. You know, can, do we have, can I interrupt to, do we have to be on yeah. that point? I remember I, when I was in prison. There were there were three uh, guys in the cell immediately next to me, three Native American guys, great guys. Two of them were cousins. One was just some young guy from the same tribe. They were from upstate New York. And there was a vicious fight that broke out between the three of them one day. Bloody fight. And it turned out it was because the young kid had mentioned offhandedly that he had applied for a U.S. passport. And the older guys flipped out for this very reason Mm -hmm. that you're talking about, John. Well, you know, and I would say uh, um, Mohawks uh, in particular, but certainly Native people from you know from from upstate New York, from New York area mm-hmm. th- that I'm a part of, we take a stronger position about citizenship and the idea of of being forced to to carry a U.S. passport to travel internationally, which is essentially an, another <laughs> egregious act. I would say, yeah, I mean, the fact that we can't yeah. produce our own travel uh, travel documents exactly. is absurd. Exactly, yeah. but see. There's a failure and a refusal to recognize our distinction, our autonomy. And by reducing it simply to race, you say, well, yeah, of course, they're they're Indians racially. I mean, the idea that they even put that down as 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 a race rather than uh, as a citizenship. I mean, and that's that gets very, very difficult for the United States. They, They still have wrestled with with how how do we coexist on you know, of course, we may not coexist on our territories, but when, quote, when supposedly seventy percent of our population doesn't live on native lands, how do? It, what is the context of our existence when we coexist with with Americans? Mm-hmm. And that's something the United States just they won't wrap their heads around it. And this Supreme Court, I don't see them wrapping their heads around it. But I'll tell you, if, if ICWA had attempted to weave sovereignty and autonomy into that mix, not just some, not just making these, these rosy colored, you know, uh, uh, pitches about culture and, and language and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and, and, or race. Mm-hmm. But you, you, I mean, if, if white people take our kids, they strip away everything well, about 
who about our identity. I want to mention we're coming up on a break in a minute, but I want to mention uh, on that note who some of the people involved in this case are, because uh, especially, I guess, years ago when it was getting some attention, it's like, oh, there's this case. There was this couple. They adopted a child. They bonded with the child for years. And then because the child was native, this agency came in and tried to take them away. And they're just fighting for this child that they love. That does not appear to be anything close to the case. Uh, This couple, the Brackeens, who are getting the most attention, are fighting to be able to adopt a second native child and got custody of the first. And this is according to reporting by Rebecca Nagel by bringing a very expensive, high powered legal arsenal basically to family court. It included the attorney general of Texas. It included Gibson Dunn, the firm that defends Chevron. They're also Mm -hmm. associated with Christian organizations that, you know, say they are dedicated to uh, concern for the welfare of Indian children. But, you know, if you go look at their website, it's it's clearly about missionary work. It's clearly about sort of denigrating native culture and uh, life on reservations. And so, you you know, I, I think any person would have a lot of questions as to the motivation of this couple. Right. But, you know, this is sort of backstory that you don't see dug into in a lot of um, in in a lot of reporting on here. So it does appear to be I mean, at least in this case, it really is about continuing that process of taking Native children out of their communities and and stripping them of of their identities. And they are sort of attempting to challenge this by saying it's it's not fair that they're taking this child away from us when we are most fit. I think we're going to go to this break now, John, and I want you to talk a little bit on the other side of, of you know, how much it matters who exactly are involved uh, in this case. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking about Howland versus Brackeen, the case before the Supreme Court that tests the validity of the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. And we are talking also with John Kane, Mohawk activist and educator. He's a co-host of Let's Talk Native podcast. He's co-host of Resistance Radio. And we were talking about uh, who exactly has brought this case to the Supreme Court? And the fact that uh, the couple that are getting the most attention, the Brackeens, are um, fighting. I, I think it's also key, in, in addition to what I said, that they have, from the start, uh, spent quite a lot of money, brought in some very, very uh, high-powered names to defend their ability to adopt Native children into their evangelical Christian household. Also, the reason they joined on to this lawsuit is because they thought, well, yeah, maybe we want to adopt more Native children. Which, again, not to, um, you know, slander the Brackeens, but certainly evokes the deliberate process of— you know, proselytizing to Native communities and uh, taking Native children out of those communities to, you know, put them in white families with very different belief systems that weren't going to respect those of their communities. And so, you know, should how much should that matter in this in looking at this lawsuit? That's a tough question, because, you know, frankly, before the break, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, other cases where um 
you know, where a household had been foster parents and got attached to a child and, uh, and then the tribe takes that child away from them. So it looks like. Well, no, that's again, what they bad, were trying bad. to say happened here, but just does not seem to be the case. But but even if it was the, the fact that the states can still seize children from a native household without our own governments being a, being a part of that mix is, is is in of itself problematic. And, you know, so but if you're if you're just going to say, well, if they're if they're white and affluent, then it's OK. Or if they're white, affluent and Christian, then it's OK. Yeah. And, and that's clearly what you have here. You've got an affluent family. That you know has you know this, this this strong almost fundamentalist view of Christianity, and among the a part of that view is again this proselytization, this 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 missionary work, this idea that you've got to view anybody who's a pagan as the enemy of Christ. That goes back to the, the papal bulls and and the doctrine of Christian discovery. Uh-huh. So we we've got you know some of these inherent problems when you get somebody. I mean, there is no such thing as an American culture. You know what I'm saying? So you can't say, okay, yeah, but are you going to teach strong, you know, strong American values? Well, what are they? Because the first thing that they, what people bring up when they talk about um, American values is is the the Protestant work ethic or something mm-hmm. like that. It always gets tied to religion somehow. And and let's face it, you know, this 150 to 200 years of residential schools was about forced indoctrination because these schools were all run by churches, you know, so, so this is, and and that's why they were so much of a, they started being such a, a part of the process of, uh, of ripping children because not only did our kids get ripped away to go to these residential schools, but those schools served as essentially like adoption agencies to get our children into, uh, into white households. And, but here's the other thing I got to say, you know, look, even if you want to make the argument that, that a child who's going to be raised by affluent white people is going to that child themselves as an individual is going to be better off than if they're raised in poverty on a reservation because that's that ends up being the argument. Yeah. I don't want our lives even as as impoverished as they may be on uh, on the territories a poverty that has been uh, uh, again imposed on us by US policy. I don't want to be judged by that. And and I don't think there should be a dollars and cents argument as it relates to that. But I got to tell you, even these white families, these affluent white families who have have taken in our children, raised them as their own, gotten them well educated and, uh, you know, oftentimes into college and that kind of stuff. At some point, it, it's almost invariably going to happen that that native child is going to say, I need to learn more about my my people. And. And so it may not happen when the child is seven. It may not happen when that child is is 16 or 20, but it happens every single time. And, you know, and the crazy part is if you look at what most people view as the as the most successful native people uh, and it's usually successful by being like judged by white standards. A lot of those are children who were were raised by um, who are raised by white families who have to try in the later years as adults to reconnect to a native territory. And and that's what's so problematic. I mean, at the end of the day, you can't just say that somebody's going to reconnect at, at 30 when they, you know, by now the language is completely gone. So much of the understanding, it isn't just about beliefs, like religious beliefs. It's about cultural understanding. You'll never, you'll never get that back. If you, if you have to live your life, you know, 20 or 30 years, uh, uh, totally severed from that culture. 
Let me also ask, I mean, because, John, you know, you are obviously a, you're a critic of ICWA, but also it seems like if the if the law is found to be unconstitutional, certain it, it opens up any native child who is not born you're not living on a reservation, you know, it, it allows them to be uh, adopted into white families without preferences made to be adopted into native communities. And so, it, you know, it feels like you're, you're sort of stuck with either this um, flawed protection or no protection at all. And I don't know that I get a sense from this Supreme Court that they're, you know, there's a, a, going to be a sort of re- rebuilding process of, of striking down ICWA in favor of finding uh, some kind of solution that uh, gives more weight, more uh, understanding of true tribal sovereignty. So I wanted to ask, you know, what, what will be the effect if this law is found unconstitutional? Because uh, people defending it say if this is overturned, basically all all of, of uh, Indian law becomes vulnerable. So what do you think, you know, what what do you think should happen here? Well, I, you know, I, I think ICWA does have a um, a legal problem. And, and I think but at, at its core, even though they, they talk about this being, you know, um, uh, um, racist because it, you know, it, it, it doesn't give, you know, children the protection that they need. But it's not about that. This is about this, this proverbial fight between states rights and uh, and federal rights and you know a, a, a part of this argument is that the federal government has stripped child placement authority from the states and taken it upon themselves and you know th- that might be a valid argument for them to make especially if they can reduce us to merely erase yeah because now they they don't have to con- continue consider autonomy or sovereignty or even culture yeah because you know you know, you don't have to worry, you don't have to consider culture when you're talking about race. Yeah. You know, so but if it is overturned, um, I could see this being um, a precedent that will allow them to to reduce uh, the definition of us and continue to reduce that definition of us as merely, you know, the mosaic of American society that we're, we're that we're somehow just, you know, part of the American, you know, uh, rainbow or something like that, which. You know, and to but reject, the, 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 I say and to reject like the political power that is uh, saying tribal membership is not based on blood quantum. It's not that, you know, we as sovereign nations have the power to decide who is a member of our nation and not and to have that be recognized. And, yeah, I think if it's if if you decide that this is about race, then you take that away. Well, you know, and here's part of the problem. You got a lot of tribal governments that still hedge about things like citizenship. You know, we, we get some people who even want to play the game. Well, I'm a dual citizen. I'm a Mohawk and I'm an American. No, you're not. No, you're not. Because if the United States doesn't recognize our citizenship as native people, then then we aren't dual citizens. We are American citizens of native descent. That's what they, they've been trying to reduce us to. Yeah. And that's the overturning of this thing will validate that a little bit more. And And I think there are some things that are going to be at risk. I mean – when we, we we talk about things like it, like healthcare, for instance, it's it's kind of absurd that the federal government, as they were um, getting land sessions, oftentimes very corrupt means, the promise was always going to be was always health, education, and welfare. And I don't mean welfare in terms of like you know welfare queen kind of thing, but but that's what that was the promise, right? 
And then they went and they they dished some of that off to the states. I mean, and and so Medicare uh, is being funded by the by the states, and uh, rather than Indian Health Services, they and then they then they took um, Indian Health Services and they took it out from underneath the Bureau of Indian Affairs and they stuck it underneath the um, health um, uh, health education and uh, welfare. So they 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 they've shifted things around in such a way that the federal government has been able to. Um, throw off some of its so-called trust responsibility, cast it onto the states. And so many of us sit here as understanding that, no, we were supposed to be provided health care. That's, that, that's what the land was all given up for. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, now we become, you know, now we've got to sign up for, for Medicare or Medicaid because, um, because the federal government doesn't want to fund uh, Indian health care anymore. I mean, this is, it, it's, a, it's, it's ugly the reason it's so complicated, and you you started the segment by saying, you know, anytime you talk about native stuff, it's complicated. It's because they don't want to, you know, come clean about the fact that we that we have the right to exist as a distinct people, mm-hmm. even as we've been outnumbered and you know eliminated essentially uh, from a population standpoint and from an autonomy standpoint. They still don't want to accept or acknowledge that we have the right to exist as, as a distinct people, and reducing us to a, to a mere race is is a way to re, uh, reduce our distinction. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's it, you, there's this sort of tension between acknowledging that, uh, you know, the, the question of what is what is sovereignty on colonized land uh, would not it wouldn't be this complicated had this colonization not existed. So there's this tension between acknowledging like the all of these were created violently and absolutely unnecessarily all of these complications and on the other hand sort of what happens what happens now what 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 do you dream of happening what is achievable in a sort of political n- medium term and what is achievable in the near term and how do you find a path forward where those things aren't sort of in in uh, opposition to each other? Because it does seem sometimes like the short term solutions are in opposition to the long term solutions are sort of built on uh, legal precedent that is is dodgy to begin with. And you get to questions like this. I I, wanna- well, I, I, I think I think that native people have to take a stronger stance on their own on their own autonomy, mm-hmm. on their own citizenship. And, you know, and, and some of it may come. Um, in the form of things like passports and that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm not the only person who sits here as a Mohawk or a Gunyagahaga who says I'm not a U.S. citizen. And I don't say it to criticize Americans or Canadians, but I don't want to be forced into to submitting to that citizenship just because they want me to, because that, that's not legal. I mean, uh, I mean, be, before the word genocide was even coined, there was the there was the what was known as denationalization, the, the idea of stripping away somebody's national or cultural character and then imposing the, the nationalism or the character of another nation upon them. Well, that's exactly what we're, we're still going. We're still going through that. That's what that's what's on trial with this Brackeen case. Let me ask you one more question, John. We're not going to get to everything I hoped for, but I always I expected that. But I did want to ask in that light, you know, what you make of these renewed efforts by Cherokee Nation to have a non-voting delegate from the tribe seated in the U.S. Congress. 
this is apparently a provision of a treaty that the U.S. government has ignored for nearly 200 years. Um, but the delegate theoretically would be like those that represent D.C. and other U.S. territories in that it cannot take part. The delegate can't take part in final votes, but it could introduce he or she could introduce legislation and serve on committees. Uh, this is, you know, the, the write up of this in The Times presented it as part of a growing movement across Indian country for greater representation and sovereignty. Uh, I think I think, uh, you know, the cynical among us might have questions about uh, whether representation and sovereignty are are really equal things. Uh, and so I no, wonder, they're, they're, yes, they're actually opposite. They're not at all. Yeah. And so I, I, I have a guess at what you make of, of efforts like these. But what, what do you make of this? Well, I, I find it to be absolutely, uh, you know, it's it's voluntarily voluntary assimilation. If you want to be a part of that system and look, uh, honestly, this is it gets all the way back to the same the debate about running for those offices or voting in their elections. I don't I don't believe in any of them. I know we're everybody's talking about the the vote that took place yesterday, but Native people don't vote in large numbers in in the U.S. elections. Most most of it isn't even necessarily because of the strong position that somebody like myself takes. It's just that it's not our system. It's just, it's it's not what we do, and. The idea that that somebody's going to push to have some non-voting representation in Congress is is really it's it's really kind of pathetic in a way because what what's the point? And and you're going to be, be sitting there without even a vote in such a a tremendous minority. What are you really going to advance that's going to be great for Native people if you are a non-voting member of Congress somehow? Right. Um. You but know and. Seems- and it seems it's, dangerous it's to conflate representation and sovereignty consistently. Well, they they are not the same thing. Yeah, it'd be different if you were being represented, um, you know, or somehow recognized by the State Department. Now that that would be sovereignty. But if you're being gifted or granted some sort of seat, I mean, I yeah. I go right back to Deb Hallen. Deb Hallen works for Joe Biden. She, you know, she she works for the white guy in the White House. She doesn't work for us. Yeah. And so who would that person work for if they were a delegate of, or some sort sort of representation in Congress? I mean, for just the Cherokees? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of guys who are I think Tom Cole claims to be Cherokee or something like that. Or Governor Stitt from Oklahoma James claims to be Cherokee. I mean, I mean, I, to me, I, I think this that whole argument is is really is really weak and. I don't care if they get it or don't get it. It doesn't impact me one way or the other. But I I think it's it's, you know, we have a word for it. We call those people sellouts. John Kane, it's always great to talk to you. Tell our listeners what you are talking about on uh, Let's Talk Native and on Resistance Radio. Well, I I still have to keep going, coming back to um, to a lot of the residential school stuff. But, you know, this is uh, supposedly our special month, (laughs) National Native American Heritage Month. But. I mean, a lot of what I've been talking about lately is just this idea of casting us as just relics of the past. And I mean, even even that that special month thing, you know, it says our heritage, not our existence. So we want to romanticize everything. And it's ironic that, that you got Veterans Day that comes up around the same time as, you know, the, this our, our special month, because then you get this this whole notion uh, where people start pitching that Native people enlisted the higher rate um, in for military service because of our warrior tradition, as if we have some sort of 
genetic predisposition <laughs> to carry a gun and kill people or right. something like that, which I find insulting at best. Um, and, and, you know, this is, I mean, I, the NPR stations are, are, are putting all the stuff out there. Oh, the warrior tradition. Wow. And the reason native people enlist at a higher rate is because of poverty, yeah. because of racism and because of 150 years of indoctrination through residential schools. So that's the bottom line. Yeah. Boy. All right, John Kane, thanks for talking to us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I think we're going to skip this break. And we get are going to yeah, skip this break. Yep. Um, electoral numbers are still uh, rolling in, but it seems pretty clear that the much predicted red wave, we said this an hour ago, has failed to materialize. Still, it appears that the Republicans will probably take control of the House of Representatives, even if by a razor thin margin. The Senate is still up in the air and it really does look at this point like control of the Senate is going to come down to this uh, runoff election in Georgia on December 6th between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Individually, there have been several electrical shocks, electoral shocks, although not finally decided. For example, it appears that Representative Lauren Boebert uh, has lost her race in Colorado. This is just crazy to me. Um, I just got a text from a friend of mine who is a journalist uh, in Colorado, and he's saying, I'm going to tell you right here, he's saying Lauren Boebert is getting crushed in her home county by Democrat Adam Frisch. Um, I just learned it's because simply nobody likes her. Mm -hmm. Garfield County is a red county. Democrats won for U.S. Senate, governor and Congress, but are losing in the state house, the state commissioner, the state treasurer, the state assessor and county clerk. It's because they simply don't like her. And Trump loyalists and election deniers, Carrie Lake and Blake Masters, appear to have lost their close races for Arizona governor and U.S. senator, um, respectively. Carrie Lake has already said in the last hour that the election was stolen from her and she's calling for uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. Trump loyalists also failed to defeat Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and they lost several competitive races across the country for Secretary of State. We are going to talk about what all this means with Kim Keenan. Kim is an adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel of the NAACP. So glad to have you back, Kim. Welcome. Always a pleasure, and we're going to have fun today. We're going to have fun today. In fact, I have so many questions, I fear that we're not going to have time for them all, but I love this stuff. Let's start with what happened to this red wave. It just never materialized. Exit polls are telling us that the Dobbs decision and abortion was much more important to voters than we had realized, much more important than pollsters were led to believe. To what do you attribute the Democrats' ability to hold on to these, some of these close Senate races, like in Pennsylvania and New Hampshire? Was it really abortion? Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, and I don't know who those pollsters were, and I don't know who they called. I know nobody called me. <laughs> no question. You know, um, the exit polls where it said that four in 10 voters, think about that, four in 10 voters were angry yeah. about the overturning of Roe not Not just unhappy. Dramatic. Not, not feeling it or thinking maybe they might be wrong. Angry. Anger is what gets people out of their houses and down to that polling place and hitting that button. Anger. And anger is something they share with all the people around them. You know, exit polls aren't perfect, but they're 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 the best we have because then, you know, it's no reason not to tell what you did. Um, and I think a lot of women in those voting booths, a lot of fathers, people don't realize, you know, fathers have daughters and a lot of 
mothers and boyfriends are saying, we better get out here and vote for choice because women are not going to let their rights be left to the wind of uh, politics. And what do they say? Happy wife, happy life. So I think when you look at Kansas and Kentucky, right. of anti-abortion right amendments, I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, that, that says it all. That, that, you know, I read that it was a pink wave. It wasn't a red wave. Oh, that's good. Right. So I think that's a good way to put it. And I, and I do think there are places where Republicans, you know, had their messaging right with the right people at the right place for a time. But it, translating it across this vast country, you know, the place determines what the people are like. And the people are not the same everywhere. But people were mad about this because it did not represent democracy, that opinion. That was not what people feel in this country. Kim, Senate races that are still too close to call are in Nevada, Wisconsin, and Arizona. Well, Wisconsin actually was just called about an hour ago for Ron Johnson. So Nevada and Arizona, of course, Georgia. The Democrats had a tough time in Nevada across the board. The um, uh, incumbent members of, of the House squeaked through. The governor, uh, Sislak, looks like he he is going to lose. Uh, the economy is bad there. The state still hasn't fully recovered economically from COVID. In Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes made a few campaign errors and faced he- headwinds in really what was a Republican year up there in a purple state. And Arizona has been practically militarized and has been the focal point of millions and millions of dollars in Republican campaign spending on the issue of immigration. What are your thoughts on these on these races? None of them have been specifically called yet, uh, and they're all close. But it looks like the Democrats are going to win in Arizona, lose in Nevada, and, as I said, have already apparently lost in uh, Wisconsin. Yeah, again, I think it's all the things we've been talking about. Um, You know, people were mad about that Dobbs opinion. And and I I do think it it, it really, in a close call, right, what people have at their core and what they're passionate about is what they focus on, right? You know, at the end of the day, you know, if if the economy is bad, but the economy is bad everywhere and and there's all these reasons why the economy is bad, you may be hurting, but you may not be as mad mm-hmm. about that as you are about something that will take effect immediately in your life. And I think I think that there's been a lot of spending in those places. The Republicans are smart enough to try to spend the money where they're going to get bang for their buck. And you see that time and time again. I, I can only imagine how much money is on its way to Georgia right now, because that people understand that the money matters, although it's so close there that people may have to start campaigning with more than money. They may have to bring some actual heart and thought and intelligence to the campaign. Yeah. Because when it's this close, then the pushover is getting the hearts and minds of the people. And so, um, you know, actually, I think it's a good idea that they are going to have a runoff so they know what they really picked. You know, that's a good thought, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Libertarian ended up with something like 1.7%. Um, and then one-tenth of 1% was scattered around to write-ins and, you know, everybody else. Uh, but the Libertarian has not made any comment about endorsing either Warnick or, or Herschel Walker. I was thinking that, too. I mean, that, that right there is the difference. I mean, that's, that's the difference. That's it right there. I think Warnick ended up uh, with 492 
uh, Walker with like 48.7. It's crazy close. And, you know, I, I sort of did a little dance with the, uh, with the, the libertarians when Gary Johnson was the nominee in 2016. I, I traveled to, uh, to a dozen Western states with Gary and uh, wrote a couple of op-eds for him. And he used to say all the time that when people would tell him that they weren't going to throw away their vote on, on a third party candidate, right. that they were going to vote for the lesser of two evils, he would say, look, the lesser of two evils is still evil. How are we going to get out of this? How are we going to break this, this rut if right. we just pick the guy that we hate less right. and vote for him because he's either a Democrat or a Republican? Right. And so it, it, I was reminded of that when I saw that this libertarian uh, whose name escapes me now um, hasn't made any endorsement. And so where does his 1.7 percent go? I think that you're also right that it, this is going to totally depend on turnout. First of all, I'm glad I don't live in Georgia, especially for the next four weeks, because this is going to be ridiculous. They're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars from super PACs. Money's going to pour into that state 24 seven advertising. Right. But imagine I'm every Republican, every national Republican is going to be there campaigning for Herschel Walker. The Democrats are going to turn turn out, you know, Barack Obama at all to go down and try to rally voters in in the Atlanta area, in Augusta and some of the other Democratic strongholds. Yeah, the, the, the whole fate of the Senate rests on this one race in four weeks. With two people who couldn't be more different. Oh, my God, yes. We put out a flag and said, one flag is going to be in Pennsylvania, and we're going to put the other flag in California. They couldn't be more different if they were those two flags. I mean, it's just as crazy as can be. Um, you would think it would be clearer for people. It, 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 whichever side you're picking, you'd think it would be a lot easier and clearer to make this choice. But it really does show what the country looks like right now. And, and people are very tied to party, right? We, we don't even talk about these elections anymore in terms of issues. We talk about Republicans and Democrats. And I think that's the problem that libertarians are having. It may be the lesser of two evils, but it's one of the ev- I'm picking the evil that's going to win as opposed to picking someone who's not going to win. And he had better use this opportunity if he wants to raise that libertarian platform to take a stand and pick one. This is not a time to say it's the lesser of two evils. One of those two evils is going to win. You better be clear about which one it is that you want. So I think this is an opportunity for the libertarian in in Georgia. And if he's really thoughtful about this and wants to have a bigger platform the next time, this this is power. This is what power looks like. His 2% is a 2% that's going to make the difference in the end. So. I'm 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 rooting for him to make a choice and to make a reasoned choice and 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 come out in a way that is helpful. The Republicans had hoped to pick up several gubernatorial seats but they failed to do so at least so far. Democrats won big in Pennsylvania. They won pretty big in New York after after everybody said that this was the sleeper race of the year and they won in Michigan and it appears that the Democrat has also won in Arizona. Republicans, though, held on to the state houses that they already had, except for Michigan. Um, what do you think this means? Is it that there was no national trend, that governor's races were decided based on local and state issues, or was it something broader? 
I mean, I'm also going to pipe in and say, yeah. I think this was also about abortion. When you kick it back to states, people Good get point. more fired up to vote for state senators. That's yeah. a guess from me as to, you know, I think it was a an issue that influenced quite a lot of elections. The cover photo of Gretchen Reimer says uh, she was the woman, the emblem of choice for women. I mean, that that says it all about how she won, why she won, and why she's the governor. And I think that people under I mean, I, 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 I just don't get how they could have, because women vote. Women know this is important. Yeah, you might disagree with your sister over there who believes life starts you know, the second the sperm touches the egg, you may disagree, but you, we all know that this is a, a choice that's going to change the lives of, of women who, who don't even live in a world where they understand what the impact is going to be. And, and I think that people really underestimated how that felt state by state. And it's one of the few things that could bind us nationally is how so many silent people, if you will, in the sense of how this has gone, have had, not the people who are out there picketing every day on either side, but real everyday women who have grandmothers who can tell them what it was like before, or mothers who can tell them that they made a difficult choice. It maybe wasn't the first choice they wanted, but it was a choice they could make, and it wasn't going to be censured by the country. It wasn't going to be canceled on Twitter. So I think I think that people underestimated that. I do think that um, places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York don't like a lot of theater in their politics, right? They don't pick people because they're media celebrities. They pick people because they think they're going to go to work and do something that makes a difference in their lives. And I think people are underestimating. People want substance. They want people who really want to do this for real and not for a photo op. I think that's right. The House was supposed to be a sweep for Republicans. Um, Many of them, just as recently as yesterday, were predicting pickups of 20, maybe even 30 seats. That just never materialized. And indeed, we still don't know who's going to control the House or by what margin. As things stand right now, the Republicans are up by five or six uh, seats. They need six to take over. What do you think happened there? Why were the polls so wrong? And why with redistricting and gerrymandering, which was supposed to have so seriously helped the Republicans, uh, did they not blow the doors off these races? Well, you know it's bad when you can't win when you've changed the rules so that you can win. <sighs> yeah. They change the rules so they should win, or as I like to say, it's the shaving process. They want to shave vote. They're not trying to, it's not like the old days where you just try to prevent whole groups of people from voting. No, we just want to shave enough of you off that the vote is small enough that you can win. And if you can't win when you've changed the rules to make that happen, it means that people, you, what your message is, is not resonating with people. They did not stick with their big picture best messages, right? The economy, the economy. Spinning, but they and that double talk that they have. So on the one hand, they're saying you know it's big government and you know the the Democrats are doing anything wrong. But at the same time, they're filing lawsuits over student loan forgiveness and they're trying to crack down on doctors. Let me tell you something: this doctor thing is going to come back to haunt all these people because. I, I'm, go- I'm going to the doctor and I'm meeting people and they're saying people don't want to become OBGYNs. Well, when we wow. lose a country of people who want to deliver babies, 
When you start going after those people to, to enforce these rules, they're going to stop because these are the brightest people we have. They don't want to do this anymore, and people are trying to sue them. And then they're trying to sue people over student loan forgiveness in the courts. That, that, that's double talk because Republicans are the party of no lawsuits. But yet they're becoming the king of lawsuits. They're filing lawsuits about everything they don't like. And I think between that and the fact that they did not realize that abortion overturned the way it was, and even the way it was done, I think some of it is really more about the way it was done. But the fact that it was done that way, people felt it was unfair, it was undemocratic, and it did not represent the majority. And the fact of the matter is, we know if you pulled the whole country red and blue, see the shining sea, people were in favor of it. Not It wasn't like 100% to zero, but it certainly wasn't 51% who were against it. Michelle and I have been discussing the relative success yesterday of progressive Democrats around the country, but much of the news today is about incumbents like Abigail Spanberger, the former CIA officer and moderate Democrat from the Washington exurbs. The conventional take, and we saw this in the Post and the Times today, is that this is what Democrats need to do to win. They need to move to the right spend millions and millions of dollars and then win by a few hundred or a few thousand votes or lose or lose. (laughs) Exactly. You know, as we saw in Val Demings or if you are uh, the woman in Kentucky that they put up against uh, Mitch McConnell, McConnell. Amy McGrath. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Amy McGrath. Oh, the guy they ran against uh, Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. To me, that is exactly the opposite of what the Democrats should do. We, we ought to have a clear choice between the two parties. The Spanberger model is to essentially become moderate Republicans. Yeah. Moving to the right offers voters no choice. Is this, do you think, the future of the Democratic Party, or is this an anomaly for an off-year election? I think this is an anomaly, not for off-year elections, but for Virginia. Uh-huh. It's a really conservative place, and I don't care whether you... You call your color blue or red. You're still a pretty naturally conservative person. And and they had to have a candidate that would reflect that. And I think that she, I mean, she was running against Yesley Vega. Yes. Every commercial. I mean, they, I mean, these guys spent billions of dollars on both sides. And, you know, she's there saying, well, you know, if a woman is raped, she can't get pregnant because it's not organic. I mean, she's like agreeing to this conversation. (laughs) And where the person is saying it's not organic. What science did they take? Did anybody even reference science in this conversation? So she was dealing with someone who represented the most right, right person. Anywhere she stood next to Yesley Vega looked right. And I have to tell you, in all the commercials that, that Vegas side ran, and I have to give it to them, they painted her, they actually put her in a Nancy Pelosi pantsuit and, and stood her next to Nancy Pelosi. I mean, they looked like they were sisters or twins. Um, so they made it seem like a vote for her is a vote for Nancy Pelosi. And in Virginia, you wouldn't, you would think that would resonate with Republicans. So the fact that it didn't, the fact that Republican police chiefs stood up for Spanberger means that she took a position that it may not have been the right that they wanted, but it really, it, you couldn't really ever be left in Virginia and win. So I, I do think it's an anomaly. I do think it was very different. I was watching all those commercials. They were all very well financed and they needed to be. I, I don't think that strategy would have worked 
in uh, Pennsylvania, maybe. It might not have worked in, in Michigan. I think that she, they did what they had to do to win based on the place. And I do think people underestimate that where you are matters and that people who, who live and breathe that state represent a certain type of person and, and you're trying to get their vote. And I think, I think that Spanberger did the, the best job she could of being who she was because she's not exactly like, you know, she's not like a warm, fuzzy, hug you person. No, no. But, but uh, in the end, the thing that they used against her every day was that she voted 100% with Nancy Pelosi. So if, that's, if that seems more right to people, I'm okay with that because she's still doing what she does for her party in line with her party. So I think that's okay. I mean, I think one of the things that has been interesting about these results so far, and people have been joking about all the uh, – the columns that won't see the light of day that, uh, you know, were, were about how Democrats pulled too far to the left. And that's what tanked them because, the, you know, the members of the squad who were up for reelection one one handily. Uh, it was a progressive who who uh, flipped uh, Pennsylvania the, that, uh, you know, the the Ray, I forget the name of the person. Right. It was actually more surprising than Summer Lee's victory, although right. Summer Lee's getting accolades for being the only candidate to beat APAC in a Mm -hmm. primary and a general. So, I mean, I think like I don't have any expectation that the Democratic Party will take these victories and run with them because I think that party does not want to be a progressive party. But I do hope that people, you know, people and, and by this, I mean, voters start to understand that when they start to get these warnings, right, Warnings from the center that, oh, yeah, that candidate you like, sure, they seem nice, sure, they say nice things, but they're not electable. They're not speaking the right political language. They're not electable. It's too it's too good to be true. You got to vote for someone else. That's not true. Right. I don't expect the Democratic Party to make that change. I don't necessarily expect I would hope the media would start to sort of see the writing on the wall. But for voters, I hope this is a signal to them that when they start getting lectured on who isn't 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 electable, uh, they will, you know, keep their own counsel on that and uh, and, you know, vote who they want to vote for instead of who they're told their neighbors will vote for, if that makes sense. No, I think I think voters are the ones who decide people who we thought like nobody thought that somebody would be able to be defeat, uh, particularly after Trump endorsed him. But we saw it happen. And I, I and if you said to me, is that consistent with the people of Pennsylvania? I would say yes. I would say that that state has everything from farming to very urban cities. And, the, you know, they they aren't, while they might be, and, I, and I've driven across that countryside because I'm from Buffalo, and, and I've driven across places where, you know, Make America Great is still waving as though Trump is still president. Um, but but they're practical people, and they they don't want a soundbite. They they want a real live person, and I think they humanized him to the point where people felt like this guy is ready and has what it takes to be our representative. And I think that's what I think some of the pollsters and, like you said, some of the media have lost. It's not just about are you quote unquote electable? You still have to talk at some point. You still have to take action. You still, you still have to be able to explain the policy. You still have to know what's going on. And I think, I think they underestimated the people of these states. And I think that that's a mistake, no matter what side you're on is to underestimate and underestimate the the, the quality of the type of people who are going to be voting. So I'm really happy to see that that, 
has sort of been uh, shot out the window because I think the way we've been doing it isn't working. I think the polls have been a joke this last cycle. Yeah. It's yeah. just a rah-rah. Don't go out because we won already. Stay in because we won already. You know, I mean, I think everybody, it, they need to really re- reconsider that. And, they, you know, the first thing somebody like me does is, well, how was this poll taken? When was it taken? Who was contacted? Well, if you only contacted your base and got all the answers from your base, and, and that's what it was, it's not really a poll. It's just this is the position of the base. I wanted to ask you, too, about ranked choice voting. We saw ranked choice voting work in a big way yesterday in Alaska and Maine. In Alaska, Democratic Representative Mary Peltola, who just won a special election, I think it was two months ago, against Sarah Palin, crushed Sarah Palin and Nick Begich by more than 20 percentage points yesterday in one of the most Republican states in America. That was thanks to ranked choice voting. In Maine, incumbent Democratic Governor Janet Mills walloped former Republican Governor Paula Page by 18 percentage points, again, thanks in part to ranked choice voting. What can you tell us about ranked choice voting? Is it spreading to other states? It's still kind of experimental. What do you think we should expect in coming elections? Well, I think when something is used successfully, you will likely hear it again. But just to give you a sense of what it is, I mean, it's ranked choice voting. It's also called instant runoff voting. Mm -hmm voters to rank their preferences in order. One, two, three, right? I, I, number one, I want to win is X, but you know what? I kind of like Y. You know, if I can't have X, I'll take Y. And then Z, I'm not feeling Z at all. And um, that's what allows people to do. So their vote isn't just simply a up or down for one person and then no one else. And you can still vote for your preferred candidate but in races where there are more than two candidate, if, candidates, if nobody gets over 50% of the first choice ballots, the lowest rate rated candidate is dropped. And then you count the second choices. So, right? And so, like it, with Herschel Walker and um, uh, Reverend Warnock, what would happen is, right, the libertarian votes would go, right, to the, the highest person. And so it would do it automatically and it would prevent the need for a runoff. So that's what it kind of does. Legal Women Voters has been, you know, vocal about this. They support it. Um, it's new. I think it, I think more, you know, we don't have civics anymore. You know, hopefully kids even know one person, one vote. But it seems like this is this has a place in our process. Um, and I think we'll, at, when it's successful and it works and the outcome is consistent with what people's expectations are, I think it will move forward. I don't think it will be done everywhere. I do think it's something that needs to come into fruition because I think we don't really absolutely know that the outcome is consistent with the one person, one vote theory. I think the more that people can prove that what ultimately occurs is what would have occurred in one person, one vote, the more you'll see it done. Um, what do you think yesterday's results mean for Donald Trump? He's been the Republican kingmaker for the past six years, but he was beaten about the face and head last night in in many races. Many, if not most of his preferred candidates, at least in, in the contested races, have lost. Just look at Arizona, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Michigan, the New York governor's race. In the meantime, Mark DeSantis cruised to a sweeping re-election in Florida. He still has more than $200 million in unspent campaign funds that he is legally permitted to use in a presidential run. What does the, all this mean for Donald Trump? 
who's expected to announce his presidential candidacy next Tuesday. On the same day that Mike Pence's book comes out, that's the day he picked. I think it shows that um, this is not his best time. Uh, it's a pitiful attack on Mark DeSantis, calling him Mark DeSantimonious. Right. I mean, if that's his best shot, then we can expect that Ron DeSantis will run as a Republican candidate for president. And I think that, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's so petty that actually other Republicans came out and talked about it. And the fact that his people didn't win, I think it. I think there will be people, there will be Republicans who say, we don't need this anymore. We're, we This cloak of you know, pettiness. We're going to throw it off because it's going to come back to bite us and we can win. We can win without it. Um, And I think that's the key. I don't think it was a good day for him. And I really am hoping it signals that his time is passing because he is the only one who can cause harm to himself. His base seems to love him no matter what he does, but he's usually the only one who can do something that harms himself. So I, you know, I think that you know, um, Republicans after this ele- this non-election outcome are going to have to really analyze if if he is really the kingmaker that they have made him into. And a, and a correction, I said Mark DeSantis, which I do a lot. Yeah, I went to high school with Mark and Teddy DeSantis, two twin brothers, and mean. they're stuck we in my mind mean, all John. these years. Uh, last question for you, Kim. What do you think this means for Ron DeSantis? Does does his performance yesterday and Donald Trump's weakness yesterday change the dynamics of what is shaping up uh, to be the 2024 Republican presidential race? I do think that Ron put some really good numbers up on the board yesterday and that, you know, if you were going to put the thumb on the scale yesterday, I think it would be in his favor. I don't I don't see anyone who has as much going for them as he does going into it. He's going to have the money, you know, he's got, he's got, you know, the the governor, he, I mean, he's governor of Florida, a major American, you know, state. He's got a lot of the things you need to have to be able to go into this. I, I will say this. I think winning the hometown is not like conquering the hearts of a nation that is so, so, so diverse. And a lot of what's being done in Florida is not going to go over well in places like California or New York or Michigan. And I would even tease Texas. I mean, you know, they can be wild cards, but I'm not sure his politics will bowl them over either. You know, they're the kind of people who can just be contrarian. Like, we, 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 you're on our side, but we don't necessarily they have to like you. So. I think it's it's not time to pull out the victory um, flags yet for him because I do think that when he has to expose who he is and how he does what he does to a nation, it, it's a whole different ball game. You know, when you have to go to Iowa, and I've been there, that is no easy trek. Let me just say, and in the winter, I'm from Buffalo. <laughs> it it is it is side by side any wintry place. Uh, when you when you got to make it through there, it's not pretty. And so um, I do think it was a good day for him, though. And, you know, in this game, it's how many wins get you to the victory. So I think it was a good day for him. I do think that he's probably the strongest in their pool. But, you know, Trump, Trump is Trump. So we'll be seeing him no matter what happens. We'll be seeing him. Yes, we will. Thanks for joining us, Kim Keenan. Kim is an adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel of the NAACP. I think we have time for a short break. We're going to take that short break and come back with a couple of uh, a couple of interesting headlines. So don't go away. Stick with us.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We've spent a lot of the day talking about domestic politics and the result of the midterms, but there was another pretty big story uh, that has gotten a little bit overshadowed by that and also by all the Twitter drama, and that is these massive layoffs at Meta. Um, now we know exactly how big they are. It's more than 11,000 employees. I think that I think the figure that I saw earlier this week was that it was going to be like seven or eight thousand. This right. is big. It's it's triple the number yeah. uh, at Twitter. It's 13 percent of the workforce. Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO, uh, you know, s- sent a letter outlining the cuts. Uh, they are across the board. But uh, I think the biggest area or reportedly the biggest areas that are going to be affected are in their recruiting and business teams because they are not planning to hire a lot of people. Zuckerberg in his letter also said the company would now become leaner and more efficient by cutting spending and cutting staff and is going to shift resources to a smaller number of high priority growth areas, among them ads, AI and the metaverse. So seems to still be banking on the metaverse and banking on AI. I don't know. I, I don't fully understand this metaverse thing. Is it a game? Is it virtual reality? What are we supposed to do with this? It's not a game. It is a virtual reality. It's a, you know, Chris Garoffa explained it to us. And there was that great New York Times story yeah. that outlined. Uh, so it, it is, I mean, I think it's intended, it's intended as a, a, a virtual meeting space yeah. for a variety of pastimes, uh, but a, a way to, but I don't people, know, a way to encounter and interact with people uh, virtually, but in a way that feels more, I don't know. I don't, I, there I, was I, something, you know what? I can't remember now. I do remember having a little bit of an aha moment and going, oh, okay, I guess that, I guess that is a marketable idea. Like I, it, I don't love it. It doesn't really appeal to me. But the future of one of the, the largest tech companies in the world, yeah. uh, it's kind of a, Kind of a big bet. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I wish I could remember now what my aha meta moment was, but I really can't. It's definitely gone. Um, yeah, I was just I was just looking through some more results of um, ballot initiatives. I was kind of curious. Different, you know, different states had these different tax measures. Uh, California was going to impose a tax on people with particularly high incomes to specifically support electronic vehicles. That got rejected. Yeah. It looked like measures in Colorado and New Mexico, though, to to tax income at a certain level. Or oh, I think in Massachusetts, it was an effort to tax income at a certain level, like add another tax. And other states did similar things that were going to direct those funds towards specific needs. Yes. Looks like some of those have passed, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. You know, there was something in the news, too, that bothered me very, very much. Oh, yes. You told me about. Yeah, this is just outrageous. The New York Times is reporting that a multimillionaire. Let me find his name here. A multimillionaire bought a Frida Kahlo drawing for ten million dollars. His name's Martin Mubarak. He 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 is being investigated by Mexican authorities for doing this. He, he went and bought a Frida Kahlo drawing uh, for $10 million. He sold um, NFTs of this drawing. Okay, no big deal. Uh, for $11,200 a piece. So he made like $1.2 million. 
on the deal. And then he set the artwork on fire. Yeah, that's just... And destroyed just it. Just stupid. Why do... Yeah. You know, the... I hate it. I hate it, too. I just can't imagine that something like this would happen. The Mexican government is calling it a brazen crime. And, you know, there are um, laws against taking artwork out of um, out of Mexico if the Mexican government deems it to be part of the national patrimony. Yeah. Apparently, he bought this thing at, at auction in Mexico and just put it in his suitcase and took it home. I want to see a picture of the drawing. I'm going to look it up or send me a link to it. Yeah. Did you talk about this? Um, there are just so many different angles to get into in these elections. And I can't remember now if we've talked about, I mean, we spent a lot of time over the last couple of months talking about how much money Democrats were pouring into the candidacies of particularly nutty Republicans. Election deniers. Uh, Mm -hmm. Election deniers, just people, people who were, yeah, just on the absolute fringe. It seems to have paid off for them. Yeah, I hate to say that. I think it's dangerous and I don't like to see them do it. Agreed. But in this case, it seems like it seems like those candidates have all lost. I mean, I think there are better things to do with that money. Um, and I don't like to see them create those risks, especially as we, what we've seen with Fetterman. You never know when your candidate is going to have a heart attack or a stroke. Yes. Right. I yes. mean, that was that was a, a closer campaign than it needed to be. But, you know. I, I will give them that it, it it worked out for them this time. It did. I think they got lucky because really that's that kind of a policy is playing with fire. Mm-hmm. You know, over the years, that's how so many right wing, you know, crazy people have found themselves elected to the House and the Senate. It's because they were promoted by Democrats in the primary with the thought that they would be so much easier to beat in a general. And then the political winds turned against the Democrats and we end up with these crazy people in uh, It is just also at the end of the day, such, it it is such a horror that we have spent so much money on these elections. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that in itself, I feel like that should be the headline for every Every campaign cycle I is agree with why, you. why was this $17 billion? 17. Can you imagine what we could have done with $17 billion? Yeah. If we had public Elections financing. Elections in other countries don't cost. No, no, no. $17 no. billion, dollars, guys. They no. don't cost this much money. Mm-mm. Right. And where is it going? Yeah. It's not going to pay, you know, it's not going to pay people to knock on door. You know what I mean? It's, nope. it's going to. Uh, it's going to wealthy consultants. That's it. Who, you know, sort of continue to proliferate. Mm-hmm. And uh, and entwine themselves with these with these parties and enrich themselves every time this comes around. And you know that's why you get emails day in and day out from Adam Schiff saying, yes. "Oh, Michelle, one more time, yeah. please send us some money." You know, but I'm asking you again: Can you give us some of your money? Well, no, I don't want to pay your nephew and your niece right. to like design a TV ad that will influence nobody. Right? Exactly. But it right. does feel again like a, it's like a little, a little bit of wealth transfer. From me, from me to you, you know, yep. go ahead, fine. Put something on the radio that, that no one will hear. Put something on TV that no one will believe, right? Make a flyer mm-hmm. that will affect nobody. That's right. I just, I, I think that it, that aspect of the spectacle is, is so grotesque and, uh, and you, it gets lost, right? You lose the forest for the trees. And it's easy to say, well, this is the system we've given ourselves. In truth, this is the system that the Supreme Court has given us, mm-hmm. you know, with Citizens United. Mm-hmm. Remember how how quaint discussions used to be about McCain-Feingold? 
that was going to be the answer to everything. It was going to make everything fair. Yeah. We had the what was the what was the rule called on uh, television and radio? The equality, equal what, time or whatever. Yeah, right, yeah whatever. Yeah. Long gone. Yeah. Long gone. And now we're spending seventeen, sixteen billion dollars on, on midterms. On midterms. I mean, again, no you presidential know, obviously control of Congress is is uh, meaningful to some degree. Although, look what the Democrats did with uh, with both houses. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I guess uh, guess we'll have some more results tomorrow, John. I I would hope so. At, at the very least, I think we should hear about some of these um, West Coast House races, and maybe maybe we'll we'll know uh, how things end up in Nevada. Maybe. Yeah. We'll see. Arizona's going to take a couple days. Well, we'll be here either way, bringing you results or, <laughs> or <not. laughs> reporting on <laughs> incremental changes in the tally. But that's all we got time for today. Thanks to everybody who joined us. Our producers and engineers, of course, and on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs>